Welcome to the Quasi Science Report. Hi there, and welcome to the Quasi Science Report. Today we are going to take a delicious dip into all things science and I'm hoping that will see us hopping all over the map and into different disciplines within science. And I also just want to say up front that I'm a big fan of seeing science as part of the whole of our daily lives and not just a discipline in a glass box of research on its own. So maybe this will give us all food for thought in all other aspects of our lives. So here we go. We're going to talk about a fascinating glimpse into funeral practices from thousands of years ago and how that relates to us nowadays. We're going to share all the social gossip from the world of ants. And on the tech front, we're going to talk about walking while drunk. And then also on the tech front, we're going to talk about this amazing new app called Crowd, developed right here in South Africa by two recent graduates. And then finally, we're going to look at a new breakthrough in COVID-19 testing. And last but not least, we're going to be discussing what the pandemic will do to our baby making practices. So grab a cup of coffee and listen up as we first go to the world of archaeology and paleontology. So this is weirdly topical, but new evidence shows that people living in the Middle East 9,000 years ago were grappling with the exact same dilemma we face today. Should the dead be using up prime real estate? So the story goes like this. The researchers from the French National Center for Scientific Research, led by a scientist with the unforgettable name of Fanny Boquentin, were excavating a site in the Hula Valley in the north of Israel, and they find a pit, and inside it they find about 350 bone fragments. And then when they get up close and personal with the bone fragments, they discover that they've been exposed deliberately to temperatures of up to 700 degrees Celsius. So they figured out that the body of the deceased had been placed actually in a sitting position and had been deliberately burnt. So in other words, it definitely wasn't an accidental fire. It was a cremation. So they began to ponder the life and death of this person whose remains now held the clue to a mystery from the past. Okay, so bearing that in mind, let's rewind a bit. <laughs> Quite a lot, actually. It's 9,000 years ago. There's a young adult gender unknown who had the misfortune of being hit in the shoulder by a projectile flint. Okay, so they say the gender is unknown, but they also tend to think it was a young male who was a leader in the community. So let's just go with that. He gets hit in the shoulder with the flint. He survives, but a few months later he dies. Whether he succumbed to the injuries from the flint or something else, who knows, but he dies and he's still young. So he is placed in a sitting position in the cremation pyre along with some flowers and grasses, which the researchers think were either ornamental or to um, sort of disguise the smell of the burning flesh with a beautiful scent. And boom, part of his body goes up in a puff of smoke. It might seem mundane to us, but only because we are so au fait with the notion of creation. But for people who study such things, it opens up a new door. Because bear in mind, we're thinking now of 9,000 years ago. So it explains why there are far fewer burials that turn up after a certain point in history in that area in the north of Israel. But up until now, there was no proof as to why that was the case. So now we see that there is cremation happening. 
What has this got to do with the dastardly year of 2020? (coughs) (coughs) Mm, A lot, actually. I'm going to read you a direct quote from archaeologist Dr. Hamudi Kalaili, who was one of the authors of the study. He says, Cremation could have allowed those ancient inhabitants of the site to have more space for the living instead of devoting it to the dead. Moreover, since this was an area close to water sources, burning the bodies of those who passed away from disease could have helped to avoid further contamination. Okay, so let's fast forward now to our era. The idea of more space for the living instead of the dead is something we are still grappling with. A few South African cities over the past decade or so have actually been feeling a bit stretched when it comes to burial space. And about five years ago, I interviewed an academic named Lucien Kelfkins. She was a Dutch woman, but she was studying in South Africa, and she had just done her doctorate on burial. And after speaking to her, um, I, I must add here that I met her in a cemetery, which is a pretty unusual place for an interview, but that's where we were taking the pictures for the story. Um, I also began to think of the absurdity of giving prime real estate to the dead and then ignoring them. So she told me that more than 50% of people stop visiting the graves of their loved ones after a single year after the death. What? That's crazy, right? Let me just repeat that. Think about this. More than half of people stop visiting the grave of a loved one a year after they've died. So let's just think of Cape Town as an example. There's so much pressure on the land for simple things like housing and recreation. And yet a place like Maitland Cemetery is the size of almost 150 soccer fields. So when you put those facts together, imagine 150 soccer fields filled with horizontally buried dead bodies and more than half the families of the loved ones of those dead people stopping visiting a year later. So she said instead the dead should be integrated into the lives of the living. She created this image in my mind of families having picnics and playing soccer where their ancestors are buried, rather than all those cold, abandoned, upright tombstones covered in weeds and forgotten dried flowers and whatnot. Then let's also think about the idea that 9,000 years ago, people were scared that the bodies of the dead would contaminate the water. So obviously right now, many countries on the face of the earth are grappling with piles of bodies that far outnumber those of previous years. Thanks to COVID-19, the world has even seen ice rinks turned into makeshift mortuaries, graves being dug at a rate of knots, and many people being worried that the infected bodies could contaminate public resources like water and air. So there you have it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. From homo sapiens to little ants now who pack more social power than we think. New research has shown that ants who climb the social ladder actually live longer. So some ants start off as humble workers but they then push their way up to queen-like status and voila they suddenly have more longevity. It's actually fascinating how this happens. Their nervous systems actually undergo cellular changes that help them live longer. Meantime The poor worker ants carry on doing all the heavy lifting and have a shorter lifespan to boot. So why is this relevant to us? Because according to the researchers from the University of Pennsylvania, the findings offer insight into healthy aging in the brain and other members of the animal kingdom. Then we have the weird and wonderful world of how technology not only changes our lives, but tracks our lives. 
To say Big Brother is watching is an understatement in this case. But hey, while South African streets are now flowing again with alcohol, this breakthrough might prove very useful. So basically, smartphones may soon be able to tell whether someone is drunk based on the way they are walking. Even if the phone user is unaware of this fact, the phone might be able to detect in someone's gait if they've had one too many. I am sure you agree with me that the researcher Brian Sufoleto from Stanford University had no problem recruiting volunteers, unlike those on clinical trials who get needles of chemicals stuck in their upper arms. These volunteers were actually treated to a mixed drink that had enough vodka to not quite sink a ship, but to take them beyond the drinking limit for driving in America. So after knocking back the drinks, the volunteers had a smartphone strapped to their lower back, and thus the scientific fun began. Every hour for the next seven hours, the volunteers were breathalyzed and then asked to walk in a straight line for 10 steps, turn around and then walk back 10 steps. And you may find this interesting, as it turns out, more than 90% of the time, the researchers could use changes in the person's gait to predict when breath alcohol concentration exceeded 0.08%. So I wonder what that means for the future. It might become a way of tracking who is drinking a little bit more than they should. So next up, I want to talk about crowds. I guess for some it's a neutral word, but for other people like myself, it symbolizes sheer terror. But in this era of COVID-19, if you peel it away, there is a whole new multiverse behind it. And I guess more people are terrified of crowds than they used to be. So Shannon Mark and Fergus Drangways Dixon are two graduates from the University of Cape Town. And they came up with the idea to create an app that basically tells you how crowded a place is before you get there. It's pretty fascinating. It's called Crowd and it uses real-time information to create heat maps. So you can decide if you'd rather go somewhere else if a place looks too full. I caught up with him earlier this week and I asked them if it was fair to compare their app to something like Google Maps or Waze. So does Crowd tell you how congested a shop is with human beings in the same vein that Waze would give you a heads up on a traffic jam? Listen to what they had to say. I think someone like Google Maps or Waze is a great analogy to use uh, for human traffic rather than vehicle traffic, especially something like uh, Waze's reporting feature where drivers on the road are encouraged to say, you know, here is a speeding camera or here is a traffic jam. Uh, we hope to have a very similar thing in the crowd saying um, this, there is a large queue here or this is an empty store. So at the moment, it's set up for shops and pharmacies, but they are hoping to take it much further and wider into other public spaces. So at the, at the moment, we're obviously focusing on um, grocery stores and pharmacies because those are the two fundamentals that we thought during the pandemic, those are the most popular places that people would want to actually know the busyness. But in terms of looking into other spaces, we are exploring that, uh, the opportunities there. It's just a matter of the, the data that we managed to get hold of. Then I also asked him the golden question about any new app that appears in South Africa. Would it be useful for a person from any socioeconomic bracket or is it yet another point of convenience for those already living easier lives? I was happy with their response. This is what they said. Well, that's one of our, our great selling points is that shopping, everyone needs to shop. And no matter who you are, no matter what wealth bracket you're from, um, you want to save time. So that's, that's the great thing about it. It's so inclusive. 
anybody with a smartphone, no matter what the model is, um, you can actually download it. So whether you have the newest iPhone or an older model, you can download that. And we try to be as inclusive as we can be because it's, it's something that's so, so appropriate for any citizen. Nobody wants to stand in a queue. Nobody wants to waste time, especially now with the COVID pandemic. You don't want to be stuck in crowded spaces. Um, just to add to that, of course, there are kind of more challenges uh, going into lower-income areas. They don't have so much of the, the equipment uh, and technology backing those stores. But I think in South Africa, especially, we're very good at, at working out new solutions for our very specific problems. So there you have it. They say the app is light on data. The population information used for the heat maps is anonymous. And best of all, it doesn't just tell you how crowded a place is, but how crowded it is likely to be in an hour's time which I think is pretty cool while you are planning your day. So, of course, right now, such an app is great for trying to avoid the risk of acquiring COVID-19. But I'm pleased that the guys said the app will go much further than that. Now I want to talk a little more generally about the concept of crowds because, true story, it is my biggest phobia. And even with all things COVID-19 aside, it could be a game changer for someone like me who is absolutely terrified of heading into a crowd or being trapped in a crowd. And I know I'm not the only one. It's actually estimated that around the world, 0.8% of adults have what is called agoraphobia. So listen to this description from a man called Ruben Naidu, who also suffers from agoraphobia, but now assists others to overcome it. This is from his YouTube clip. And crowds were always really, really overwhelming for me. I used to be really, really claustrophobic in crowds. Claustrophobic and I wouldn't be able to breathe, feeling like I was, I would have full on panic attacks in crowds. So my possibly humorous anecdote is a story from in my late 20s when I was at a club with some friends. And while everyone else my age was drinking and smoking and partying their faces off, I stood on the dance floor in an absolute cold sweat, terrified that there were too many people enclosed in a small space, and there was no way to escape if something went wrong. The fear completely enveloped my mind, and my heart was pounding faster and faster, and I began to feel dizzy. So eventually, I carefully weaved my way through the, the throngs, and then, please don't laugh, but I found someone who worked there and told them I was a plainclothes policeman and that I had come to inspect their emergency exits. <laughs> As it turns out, though, the emergency exits were bolted shut so that nobody could sneak in for free without paying. So I asked the guy, but what if there was a fire, and he assured me he would, quote-unquote, look into it and speak to his manager. So that is the level of fear that I experience when I'm in a crowd. I could share many such personal stories, but let me just leave it at this. I was amazed when I was older to discover that the term agoraphobia is derived from the Greek word agora, which means marketplace. So many people think that agoraphobia is a fear of open spaces. So you might think that it's fear of, you know, being in a big open field, but it literally means fear of the marketplace. But the term marketplace refers more broadly to any populated public space. So I think I found it quite comforting when I realized the root of the word because it really hit the nail on the head for me. So that anecdote I shared was from my late 20s and now I fast forward to this year and I can say that for the last decade or so I have simply just not ever put myself in a situation where there will be a crowd. But I guess for many people this year will always be remembered as the one in which crowds became a deadly environment, not because of stampedes and the like, or potential stampedes and the like, 
but because of that invisible danger of a deadly virus spreading through the room from one person to the next. So just to end off on this topic of crowds, I just want to share some stats with you. Just listen to these numbers and then imagine being in this crowd and the possibility that a highly infectious disease is making its way through the crowd. 100,000 passengers pass through Beijing train station every single day. The world's biggest sports stadium is Rungrado in North Korea and holds 150,000 people. In South Africa, minibus taxis make 15 million commuter trips every single day. So you can imagine that is 15 million trips in which a mobile crowd is being ferried along on the roads. And then, this freaked me out, in 1994, Rod Stewart played to a record crowd of 3.5 million people at Copacabana Beach in Rio. That is enough to give me a panic attack just reading about it. Huh. Okay, so while we are still on the topic of things COVID-19 related, I'd like to now touch on two very interesting finds that relate to the pandemic. The one is a new test that is looking very hopeful and the other is to do with fertility. So a sliver of good news on the pandemic front has come in the form of a new way to test for COVID-19. Up until now, the world has been relying on the nasal swab tests. Those of you who've had it will know that it involves a long stick with a soft brush on the end, kind of like a pipe cleaner being inserted into your nose. Then it's twirled around for a few seconds so that the bristles can collect a sample of secretions for analysis. And it's not the most comfortable of procedures. And one sometimes has to wait for a few days for the results to come back from the lab. It's also expensive and relies on reagents that have been rather scarce throughout the pandemic. On the upside, and it's a big upside, these lab tests can tell you if you are still actively infectious. Although, you know, I guess that hardly counts if you have, had, if you have to wait several days for a result. <laughs> so the far simpler tests being done are antibody tests, also called serology tests. These are less invasive and have faster turnaround times, but can only tell, and not with 100% accuracy, if your body has produced antibodies. So in other words, it can tell if your body has mounted some kind of response to the infection, but that does not tell if you are actively infectious or not. So it's useful to figure out how badly a community is hit, but it doesn't tell you if you're still infectious. So, you know, in that way, it's a lot less useful than the, the nasal swab test. So with all that in mind, the last few days have seen a major breakthrough. Basically, a new saliva test has been developed by Yale University, which is quick, inexpensive and non-invasive. And it can tell if you're actively infected with COVID-19 rather than if you've only got antibodies. So, you know, in my mind, it brings together the, the sort of the advantages of the nasal swab test and the antibody testing. It's called the Saliva Direct Test and was given emergency youth authorization by the Food and Drug Administration in America. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of hope being pinned onto it. Some are calling it a game changer because it will reduce the demand for scarce testing resources, like those needed by the nasal swab tests, and it can produce results in under three hours, which is pretty amazing. 
The test is expected to hit the shelves in America in the coming weeks, but it obviously could be some time before we see it on South African soil. But hey, we'll take any positive news we can get during this pandemic, right? And then lastly, another very interesting bit of research on COVID-19 is actually to do with fertility. This comes from a group of researchers at the University of Florence who found that throughout history, spikes in mortality due to wars and famines were followed by increased births, while the so-called Spanish flu resulted in a temporary drop in fertility before recovering during a so-called baby boom. But contrary to this historic trend, the COVID-19 health emergency will pl plausibly cause a decline in fertility. So we're definitely not looking at a baby boom here. The researchers say that although it is difficult to make precise predictions, a likely scenario is that fertility will fall, at least in high-income countries and in the short run. This is because of disruption in the organization of family life during lockdown. I'm sure many of us have experienced that as well as school closures and the fact that dismal economic outcomes tend to result in couples postponing childbearing, which makes sense, I guess. But I should add here that in low and middle income countries like South Africa, it's a little more complicated. Fertility has mainly declined in these countries in the past few decades because of things like urbanization. The researchers say a short-term spike in unintended pregnancies might now arise from many not having been able to access family planning services at this time. So that is a bit worrying, but it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out. So I just want to share with you a little clip now from the horse's mouth, as it were, one of the researchers talking about COVID-19's impact on fertility. Historically, we know that uh, pandemics will have a big impact on fertility rates. In the United States, between 1918 and 1919, with the Spanish flu, the fertility rate went down by 13%. So what can we expect now and the, in the years to come? Every indication is suggesting that fertility rate is going to go down. Why? One is the lockdown that, brings, that implies that children have to stay at home parents have to stay at home. So there's a lot more tension and stress and that might have an impact on people's decision to have more children or not. Obviously, perhaps more important, the economic downturn. People are losing their jobs, losing their income and they feel very uncertain about what's going to happen in the near future. And that are, those are factors that very much affect people's and couples' decision to have children or not. So there you have it. We have walked with the ants, we have danced with the dead, we have clawed our way out of crowds and pondered the future of our populations. I really hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have and that we meet again for the next edition of the Quasi Science Report. Have a good day. <laughs>